I'll read from verse 28 of Luke 24. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. And they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marvelled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Let's pray. O God of glory, risen Christ, gracious Spirit, Grant that we may know you and your truth this day. Lord, teach us what only you can teach us. Show us what you, gracious Spirit, alone can impress upon our souls. Lord, fill us with that joy, that holy marvel. Take away all our unbelief, we pray, that Christ may truly be all in all to us, even this day. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Some surprises are horrible, and some shocks are pleasant, and some can be both. You may have had such a shock, you may have given such a shock. I remember my mother and my sister waiting up for me late one night. Uh, they'd expected me back uh, earlier than I actually did arrive, and they happened to be watching a suspenseful television programme when I walked in. Uh, I walked in quite quietly. I walked up behind them quite quietly, and at what turned out to be a critical moment in the programme that they were watching, I leaned in and I said, "'What's happening here?' <laughs> and they rose like salmon from the seats in which they were sitting, and... I think they were pleased that I had arrived safely home, but they were nevertheless displeased about the shock which I had caused to them. It was both pleasant and unpleasant. It was something where a whole flood of emotions were mixed together. 
There's a flood of emotions that are mixed together here in Luke 24 as the Lord now appears bodily to his disciples when they are in this upper room together. And the reaction of the disciples actually helps to emphasise for you and for me the reality of his resurrection body. We might wish that the disciples had believed more readily, but their doubts actually increase our confidence because we see from the way the Lord deals with them the very things that Theophilus, remember the man for whom Luke was originally writing this text, and by extension, me and you, we can see how Christ is risen from the dead. Again, there are things here that are difficult for us to understand. It seems that in the glorified body of our Lord Jesus, and remember, that is a pattern for my body and yours in the resurrection, there are certain clear continuities between this body as we now know it and the body of the resurrection. And it seems there are certain clear discontinuities between what we are now and what we will be in glory, between Christ's real humanity in his humiliation and his equally real humanity in his glorification. And in there, there are some wonderful comforts and some wonderful lessons. Our episode begins in verse 36 with an unexpected arrival with an unexpected arrival. Now, when he'd drawn near to Cleopas and Cleopas's friend on the Emmaus Road, it had been a natural appearing. We know what it's like for someone to catch up with us or to come alongside us when we're on a walk. And that's how Christ had drawn near to them when they were heading out of Jerusalem to Emmaus. But his departure from them after they had arrived in Emmaus and when they had broken bread together was not natural. Their eyes were opened, verse 31, they knew him and he vanished from their sight. At one moment he was there and discernible, perceptible, and at the next moment he was either not there or they could no longer see him. His arrival in Jerusalem is like his departure in Emmaus. Now, remember that they've just been talking together. Cleopas and his friend have rushed back those seven miles from Emmaus to Jerusalem because they've seen the risen Jesus. Their hearts burned within them while he spoke to them on the road. Then their eyes were opened. They know he's alive. They get back with what they think is the great news that they can confirm, only to discover that the disciples are already there saying, it's not just the women now, it's also Simon that, who has had the appearing of the Lord. We know that he is risen. And they begin to show share all this news and they are speaking together and you have to anticipate that they're excited they're close together they're grabbing at one another they're holding on to one another they're emphasizing what they've got to say and then all of a sudden the Lord Jesus is there in the midst of them and speaking now in John's gospel chapter 20 and verse 19 John emphasizes that the doors were locked because they were afraid of the Jews and that's when the Lord Jesus was suddenly in their midst. It's not like somebody walking up quietly behind you. It's somebody who wasn't there before who is now there right among you. It's as if 
this building were, were locked and shuttered. And all of a sudden, somebody's sitting on the back row who wasn't there a second ago. It would seem that the body that we will have in glory will not be subject to the same limits of time and space that these bodies are subject to. I can describe that. I can read the record of that. I cannot fully explain that. But our glorious bodies are going to be like the Lord Christ's. And it seems as if, at least in measure, some of what we consider to be the ordinary bounds of movement and being are going to no longer operate in precisely the same way. How would you respond? Not just because someone's walked up behind you and said boo at a suspenseful moment, but if all of a sudden there was somebody in the seat right next to you who wasn't there a moment before who turns to you and speaks. We're very quick, we've seen this over and again, we're very quick to say that the disciples need to get their act together. But I think when we put ourselves in their shoes, we would not react in any way different to some of the things that they did. It's not just that there is an unexpected arrival. There is also a wonderful blessing. Christ is right there, and as he is in their midst, he says, <clears throat> peace to you. Now, on one level, that's the normal and normal-sounding greeting that you would give in this context. It's the, the shalom greeting or the salam greeting that is still current in parts of the world. But it's not coming from an ordinary person. It's coming from the risen Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And I, I'm, I'm persuaded that when the risen Jesus says peace to you, there is a richness and a sweetness in that that goes beyond just an ordinary and familiar greeting. Remember that he was the one in whom peace had been promised. Micah had said of the one who was going to be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah, this one will be peace. When Zacharias had given his prophecy concerning the coming of Messiah, it had been peace which was at the forefront and the conclusion of his testimony. In Luke 1 and verse 79, what was it that the angelic hosts declared to the shepherds on the hills outside of Bethlehem? Peace on earth and God's goodwill toward men. And now this peace has been procured. The Lord Jesus had said in John chapter 14 that he was going to obtain this peace. And it's something that the apostles delight to express and to enforce. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. He himself is our peace. He has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near you Jews and you Gentiles 
You have been brought together and brought together to God through Jesus Christ. He has removed that commandment that was a wall of barrier between you as Jews and as Gentiles. He's taken that out of the way by suffering and dying for the sake of his people and having reconciled those two great distinctions in the nations of the ancient world, the Jews and the Gentiles, they are reconciled together in one body to God. He himself is our peace. And that peace was proclaimed when Christ came. Do you remember how often when he's dealing with the needy ones, the, the ones that he heals, the ones that he blesses, the people who, to whom he shows favour? Go in peace. Christ brings this peace. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that we have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And their peace is in their midst, saying, peace to you. Those are sweet words from any lips, but they are weighty words and they come from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. What could he have said? You're the ones who left me. You couldn't stay awake with me. You couldn't pray with me. You wouldn't stand with me. Some of you weren't even at the cross when I died. What might you wanted to have said is your first words toward the people who treated you like that. But despite all their fearings and all their failings, the Lord Jesus Christ comes and declares that his atoning sacrifice has swallowed up all their sins and their sorrows. Peace to you. Now, do you have the peace of Christ? Do you have the Christ who is peace? Not just a, an offhand greeting. Do you know salvation from your sins through this Jesus? Is he yours and are you his? In one sense, there's no sweeter declaration to come from the lips of the incarnate Son of God the glorified Son of Man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who has been appointed to judgment over your soul, than peace to you. This is the peace that you need. You'll never have peace with God apart from Jesus Christ. You'll never know peace in your conscience apart from Jesus Christ. You'll never know peace from the guilt and the shame of your transgressions apart from your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And if you want peace, peace with God, if you want peace in your conscience, then you must come now to Christ. Confess your sins, trust in him, and he will speak peace to your soul. And that peace will never be taken away. It is an unbreakable peace because it is rooted in the eternal Christ who died to secure that peace, who rose for the declaration and assurance of that peace. All your tears, all your trials, all your troubles as a sinner in God's sight can be swept away through the peace that Christ gives by the blood that he shed on the cross at Calvary. And he comes 
amongst his disciples and he declares to them, I have peace. I am peace. And this peace is for you. Now, what would you like to think they did? They had just been talking with one another about how they had now all seen, at least in some measure, Jesus Christ. They know that he's risen indeed from the dead. You fellows from Emmaus, you've seen him. He appeared to some of the women earlier. Now he's appeared to Simon as well. Jesus is no longer dead. He is risen indeed. And now Jesus, the risen Christ, is there. And his first words are words of blessing. Peace to you. What would you like to have been the outcome? Celebration? Rejoicing? Bursting out in hymns of praise, singing hosannas to God? Or blind panic? Well, it's blind panic. See, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus was not wish fulfillment. These people genuinely didn't believe, didn't expect that he would rise immediately from the dead. And even when they have just been telling one another that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead, and some of them have seen him with their own eyes, now they are, notice, they are terrified and they are frightened. Their reaction to Jesus standing risen in their midst and speaking to them is to be shocked. It is to be scared. They thought, they supposed that they had seen a spirit. You know the phrase we use for that? They looked like they'd seen a ghost. That, that, that's really what we're saying. And you know what people think you look like when they say that to you, don't you? You've gone pale, you're trembling, your eyes are wide, you are shaking. These disciples thought that they had seen a ghost. Now, maybe there's a, a slowness in recognition, but there's certainly a slowness in realisation. To think that they had seen a ghost seems to suggest that there was some recognition. But even though they've just been talking about the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead, when the risen Jesus is in their midst, they suppose that they have seen a spirit. And would you or I have been any different? We might like to imagine that we would have been. But when a man that you saw die and you know was buried is suddenly there speaking to you, even if you've been telling yourself he's alive, maybe this is what we would do. We understand their fear. We are reminded again that they did not expect or assume the resurrection. We'll come back to that. So you've got this unexpected arrival. Suddenly Christ despite the locked doors, is there in the midst of them. You've got this wonderful blessing. His first words, peace to you. This sudden panic follows immediately. And then Christ puts their hearts at rest with a manifest proof. Now, if you were missing presumed dead and you turned up at home, how might you demonstrate that you were alive? Even if it's not for, a, for a, a number of years, think of some of those situations perhaps where uh, military personnel are missing, presumed dead. Maybe even decades later they're released and they make their way home. What if it's only a, a week or so, 
And somebody that you thought was dead knocks on your door and says, it's me. Can you begin to understand some of the dynamic that's taking place here? They've seen Jesus die horribly on the cross, at least some of them. They've known that he's been buried. Now they've started seeing something and here he is standing in the midst of them. Remember how Luke talks in Acts chapter 1. How Jesus, by many infallible proofs, showed himself alive. Here are some of those infallible proofs. He is very much alive. Jesus is no ghost, no dream, no human imagination. He confirms his life verbally and physically. Why are you troubled? One of those questions when you might have thought some of the disciples would have started listing some answers. Why do you doubts arise in your hearts? It's very much like what he said in verse 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Why are you shocked that Jesus has risen from the dead? Isn't that what's been promised all along? Isn't that what the prophets declared? Isn't that what Christ himself made known? Why do doubts arise in your heart? There is rebuke, but there is comfort. The Lord Jesus knows your doubts and your fears. Now, he expects you to read your Bible. He expects you to process the truth. He expects you to draw right conclusions. But he knows that you need these reassurances. See what he says. Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. That's the person who wants to demonstrate that it really is them. It, it's me. Look at me. Perhaps this is the birthmark. This is the scar. This is the eye colour. Jesus is right there in their faces and he says, it really is me. He cannot be more emphatic linguistically it is i myself i am that jesus of nazareth who died upon the cross and who was buried in the tomb this one who is in their midst is not just some random person who's made his way in by some secret means it really is Jesus of Nazareth. And the Lord wants these disciples who have known him well and have walked with him over these three years to be able to see with their eyes and say, yes, it really is Jesus who is now in our midst. And he emphasizes and demonstrates it physically as well. He draws attention to his body and its physicality. Behold, look at my hands and my feet, that it really is me. Handle, not just look, but touch. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. 
Do you remember how John begins his first letter? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John's there. John reaches out to the man in the midst, and he puts his hands on the same Jesus upon whose breast he was leaning at the Last Supper. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So there are two levels to this proof. Generally, yes, I am no phantom without a body. This is no ghostly form. This is flesh and bones. And you can feel my hands and my elbows and my shoulders. You can put your hands on my head. You know that I'm a real man. But let me draw attention very particularly to these hands, says Jesus, and these feet, says Jesus. Look, what do you see? And again from John's Gospel, we add in and confirm the expected detail that in this glorious body of Jesus Christ, in his resurrection humanity, he still bears something of the marks of his sufferings. Not because he didn't die on the cross, but because he did. And it's that very same Jesus who has risen again. Remember how he would later say to Thomas, what did he invite him to do? It's quite graphic, isn't it? Thomas, there's a great hole in my hand where this big, ugly Roman nail was driven. And there's a great gash in my side where my heart is. You can put your finger into my hand if you want, Thomas. You can put your hand into the hole in my side. Again, it tells us something about the resurrection body, that it can bear those kinds of things without in any way being, seems, physically affected. But Christ wants these men and women to see, this is me, myself. It is me. Real. And not just generally real but the very same Jesus that you knew who died on the tree and was buried in a borrowed tomb. There's a further proof later on. Have you got anything to eat? That's human, isn't it? That's eminently human. That's how you know someone's real. Apparently the, uh, the Jews had... Uh, all kinds of theories and questions about how angels sustain themselves in their, in their spirituality. If any of you read Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, again, it's one of those things, you think, why were people bothered about this? But there's a sequence where Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden are, are speaking, I think it's to the angel Gabriel as he comes down, in Milton's imagination. And literally there's, I think it's something like five or ten pages in a normal edition where they're asking Gabriel, really bothers us, do angels eat and what's their digestive process like? <sighs> Very Jewish. Christ is perfectly human. Can I eat something with you? And he reaches out that nail-pierced hand. He takes a piece of fish that's there. 
I was shocked to find how desperate people are to disprove the resurrection proofs of the Lord Jesus. Some of the more technical commentators give a couple of pages to proving that it's possible to find fish in Jerusalem. Why so desperate? Because if Christ is risen from the dead, then all of this is true. And Christ is risen from the dead. How do you know? Many infallible proofs. He appeared amongst his friends who believed that he was dead and then buried and then somehow disappeared or stolen. And when they saw him, they did not go, ah, oh, right, there he is at last. We've been expecting you. No, they supposed that they'd seen a spirit. They thought that they were seeing a ghost. They didn't recognize him. Even when the first testimonies began to roll in, they did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until the Lord in their midst said, it is I myself. And he proved it the way you would prove it if you wanted somebody to know that it was really you. Touch me. Look at me. See the marks of my identity scored into this body that I present to you. And give me something to eat. For in some way this body either needs or is able to take in sustenance. There's some confusion amongst many Christians when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Do you remember how we're told that there's a natural body and there's a spiritual body? A lot of people assume that means there's a physical body and there's a non-physical body. That is not what Paul says. He says literally there's a soulish body and there's a spiritual body. And there's a spiritual body. There is a body that is crafted by, wrought by, characterized by the operations of the Spirit of God. The resurrection body is spiritual. And that doesn't mean it's less physical, it means it's more so. It's really real. Christ in his resurrection body could say, touch me. Put your hands into the marks of my hands. Your hand into the marks in my side. And you and I need to remember this. Why? Because in Philippians chapter 3, this too is part of your confident hope and expectation. Our citizenship, Christians, is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. You need that last line, don't you? How will I be like that? It is according to the working of his power by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Have you looked at yourself recently? Take at least a brief glance in the mirror before the end of the day. Not very glorious it will be like Christ's. Perhaps you've seen the body of a Christian loved one. Perhaps you've seen it in its weakness, in its frailty, in its sickness, in its agedness. You may have been there 
when a beloved brother or sister in Christ, perhaps a family member, breathes their last. You may have been the person who finds that older saint, that Christian, who has gone to be with Christ. Their spirit has departed. Their soul has gone to be with Christ, which is far better. And you look at that body, and the sting of death is there. But it's not the end. When you stand by the graveside, and the body is lowered into the tomb, it is the body that belongs to Jesus Christ who died for his people. And that body, in the beautiful language of the catechism, rests. It sleeps. It's why we think that baptism is so, a baptism burial is so significant. It honours that body that belongs to Jesus Christ. It honours the whole principle that is set forth here. That body in the ground, it is sleeping until Christ at his return wakes it and gives us a body like his glorious body. He is the first fruits. You, brothers and sisters, you, if you are in Christ, you are the harvest. And this then gives some sense and substance to our hope. It tells you, not only will you rise from the dead, but how you will rise from the dead. You will rise from the dead because Christ is risen. If the head is risen, the body must rise. If Christ has been resurrected, then so must you be. But it's also the pattern, not just the principle. Your Jesus, Christian, really is alive. And you and I need to grasp this. We, as much as these disciples in that upper room, we need to get a grip upon the fact that the Jesus in whom we have trusted is the Christ who died and who rose again from the dead. Our hope is real because our Christ is real. Our life is assured because Jesus Christ is alive. Our heaven is substantial. Our glorified bodies are assured because the Jesus who rose from the dead is going to work in you and in me. Perhaps some of us, if Christ does not return, just in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and you will be changed. Others of us must come to that dark river. And we must for a moment... Leave behind this physical frame while our souls go to be with Christ far better. But not forever. Because Christ will come. He will bring with him those who belong to him. And who will rise first? The dead in Christ. Body and soul restored. And we shall be like him. You are going to bear the image of the heavenly man, Christian. And that is your hope. And you won't have such hope unless you remember that in the upper room, the Lord Jesus showed them his wounded hands and side, showed them his feet with the nail prints and said, it really is me. And can I now have something to eat?
while they still did not believe for joy and marveled. There's a stunned joy here. We're going to give the disciples a little bit of the benefit of the doubt at this point. While they still did not believe, that's the point which you might go, oh, really? Now? He's standing there. You can touch him. You can put your finger into the nail print in his hand. You can see the wound that is in his side. You can look into the eyes of the Jesus who died but who lives again. Perhaps the closest we'll get to this positively. It was just too good to be true. (laughs) They thought he was dead and had stayed dead. They'd begun to have these inclinations, these suggestions that perhaps he really was alive. Well, now at least Simon has seen him. Now Cleopas and his friend have seen him. But now he's in their midst. It is undeniable. It is evident. It is manifest. The risen Jesus is revealed to his disciples. And I hope that you can at least try and enter in into this swing from almost despair to incredulous joy. He really is alive. It really is him. You know, they can't all get to him at once, but they're touching him and then they're talking to one another. He's alive. That's Jesus. Have you seen what's in his hands? Have you seen what's in his feet? Thomas wasn't there, at least on this occasion. He still won't believe until Jesus comes again. There's delight. There is marvel. Do you remember Jacob when he found out that Joseph was alive in Egypt? Became like a dead man. Just stunned. The joyful news that Joseph was alive, it almost killed him. Or Rhoda, the servant girl, when Peter had been delivered from the prison, and he turned up and he knocked on the door... Rhoda opened it, saw Peter, slammed it shut in his face and ran into the room to say Peter is released and he's outside. You can understand this is human reaction. These disciples, they are stunned with joy. They're wrestling this reality into their consciousness. Their hearts have been too small and now they are being expanded at speed. And we recognise it. Because we know how easy it is to mingle unbelief with our joy, don't we? To have a lack of trust, our doubts and fears take the edge of our delight in Christ, our assurance of salvation, our confidence that Jesus is risen. Why has Luke recorded this? Not just to take the edge off your doubts and fears, but to remove them. Theophilus, I want you to know the things that are most surely believed among us. Christian, I want you to know the things that are most surely believed among us. Your Jesus is risen from the dead. Do you believe him? Foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered And entered into his glory. My friends. We have even less reason than these disciples. Standing on this side of the resurrection. And the complete testimony of the New Testament. To be foolish and slow to believe. 
when we have the record of Christ's life, his death, his burial and his resurrection set before us, a record of the many infallible proofs by which the Lord Jesus demonstrated to people who thought he was dead and would stay dead that he was alive from the dead and was living forevermore. And while we may mourn over their foolishness and slowness of heart to believe, while we may be distressed by their distress, while we may wonder at the doubts that arose in their hearts, let me suggest to you that in God's mercy, their slowness and their suspicion actually helps your confidence. Were these gullible people? They were slow to believe. And yet, having doubted even that Jesus was in their midst when he stood there, once they got their hands upon him, they could say, as John would, these eyes have seen, these hands have held. Like Peter, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. These men and these women who had locked themselves away in a room because they were terrified of being associated with the crucified Jesus, are now going to begin living and speaking and suffering and dying for the risen Jesus. Their confidence established by the fact that they know that the man who died for their sins has risen again from the dead for their justification. Luke is now carrying us toward the acts, the acts of the risen Jesus through his apostles. He's laying the foundation. This is the hinge where he turns from Luke's gospel to the acts of the risen Christ at work in and by his people. Brothers and sisters, it hasn't changed. The people who do exploits for God the people who serve him well in their generation, the people who live for him and speak for him and serve for him and are ready even to die for him, are those who know that he died and that he rose again and that he has saved us and he will never lose us and that our souls and our bodies are secured by his saving sacrifice that we may have peace with God. Amen.